Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. She is a librarian, and also my mom. <laughs> I'm N- Nate, I already said that. I'm a writer, kind of, sort of. Go to my Twitter account, read some of my writing if you feel so inclined. Uh, and uh, we read things and talk about them together on a podcast that you're listening to because it's this podcast. What did we read this time? We read the novella Three Blind Mice by Agatha Christie. It was published in air quotes in 1948. It was actually a radio play, a half hour radio play produced in 1947 for the queen. She asked what she wanted for her birthday and she said she wanted a new story from Agatha Christie, who was her favorite writer. So Agatha Christie wrote this short story produced it as a radio play, which was based on a true case that happened during the war about a foster child who was murdered by the people that took him in. And she made the story and she wrote it for free so that she could raise money for charities that dealt with foster care, which was an issue that she was interested in. So later on, after the play airs, she decides to turn this short story into the really famous play, The Mousetrap. And then in a condition for her copyright, she said that as long as The Mousetrap was playing anywhere in the world, the story could not be published in England. So it spoiled the twist, I assume? I think so. But it turns out that Mousetrap becomes the longest running play of all time. And since the 1940s till now, it is still at some point being put on in the world in some form. So this short story has only been published in the United States, never in England, because technically Mousetrap is still playing. Okay, so now that you... So it was a radio play, then a short story, then a stage play? Yes. Now that I know that it is a radio play, it makes a lot of sense because this, one of the weirdest things, and there are several very weird things about this story, is that it has a cold opening, like an episode of Law and Order. I think so. And also, it's interesting to note that the murderer in the short story is different from the murderer in the play. I would be interested, I've never seen a production of The Mousetrap. I would be interested to see it because reading the story... And thinking about it now as a radio play, it makes a lot of sense because I feel like this story kind of doesn't work if you can see the characters. Like, it relies a lot on sound. Like, that's the gimmick of the three blind mice thing is that the killer literally has a diegetic theme song. Right. And I think that's a classic styling of Agatha Christie. She takes something, either a poem, a nursery rhyme, some repetitive couplet and uses that as a plot point in a lot of her writing. Oh, well, yeah, Ten Little Indians or the other version of that. But I think it's interesting to note, too, that the play that was put on in 1947, the radio play, was never recorded. So there's no recording and there's no copy of the original script from the 1947 play, just this short story that she wrote afterwards. Well, yeah, the BBC has a notoriously poor archival procedure or i mean it did it's much better now but there are lots and lots of recordings and tv shows and all sorts of stuff that the bbc made 
and produce an air that's just lost to time because they either didn't record it or the recordings were damaged or recorded over. Like, there are tons of missing episodes of Doctor Who and all sorts of stuff like that. So, I don't think I was clear. It was for Queen Mary's 80th birthday that Christy wrote this radio play for her. I don't know. Okay. Anyone who's checking facts will need to know that it is Queen Mary. So, it ends up being published in... It's a novella. It ends up being published in the United States in a book called Three Blind Mice, which is the novella and a bunch of short stories that mostly star her most famous detectives. Except for this one. She does not this have. one doesn't have a famous detective. And this detective never shows up in anything other than this novella. And then... Well, when we get into the story, I'll talk about why that makes sense. Yeah. It's, this is not a detect. This is not a mystery or a detective story. No, and I think if you once you know that it was originally a radio play, like you said, it makes a lot of sense the way that it's written, and also when you visualize it in your head, you can sense the sort of dramatic because it's weirdly plotted, but then it makes sense when you realize that it's supposed to be different actors coming in and doing different voices and roles and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. Let's get started. We'll start talking about it. Yeah, so before we get into explaining the plot, I want to say I was surprised by this story in a couple ways. And so one of them was, and this is sort of, I've never really read a lot of Agatha Christie stuff. My, my Most of my experience with her work is like the odd adaptation here or there that I've seen. And I started reading but never finished, I think it's her first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Yes. And so, like, this and that, I had a similar experience where I was like, these are surprisingly meta. It's interesting how much, in a very kind of, uh, not to be insulting, but a very M. Night Shyamalan kind of way, the characters talk a lot about, like, the tropes and conventions of mysteries, and, like, they specifically talk about plays in this one. Like, oh, this would be the moment when the killer would enter, and there's a character, without f- saying the phrase, basically goes, oh, well, eventually we're going to have to have a parlor scene. And then they do have a parlor scene. And that leads into the other thing that was a surprise to me is this is not a mystery or a detective story. Nobody solves a mystery in this. There's no insight into the process of unwinding the conspiracy at work. And when things do happen that look make it look like a mystery story, like the parlor scene... They're fake, and their characters are doing those things deliberately to trick people into thinking there's a traditional mystery at work and to throw them off of the trail of what's actually happening. I think what, well, Christy sort of has this history. She's very iconic in the history and development of detective, modern detective fiction. And I think when she started writing, her aim was to sort of elevate these sort of low class, you know, not really intellectual kind of genre, which is like the murder mystery, the cozy mystery, Mm -hmm. and try to inject some type of literary prestige into it. And I think that's what she begins to do. But if you notice, there's been a huge resurgence in everything that has to do with Agatha Christie. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had the new um, Poirot movies with Kenneth Branagh and his amazing mustache. Mm-hmm. There's the John Malkovich series, the ABC Murders. There's a resurgence in the interest in the original Poirot because of 
the movies. And there's just been a lot of like, I guess, modern detective writers who are acknowledging the influence that Agatha Christie has had on them. And I think springing it sort of back into the limelight. My, I had not read a lot of Agatha Christie as well, but one of my plans after finishing my Hugo Award list was to read all the Agatha Christie novels. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start with just a novella to sort of bring the conversation because I'll be talking a lot about Agatha Christie novels in the coming year as I go through each of the different detective series. My plan is to read them by detective in order. Okay. Uh, do you know how late into her career this story was written? Well, it was published in 1948, so I think it was midway in her career. She was prestigious enough mm-hmm. that the Queen of England was aware of her writing. And she sort of, like, her sort of sweet spot of, like, literature is during World War II and right after it. Because a lot of her writing has to do with, like, spies and and sort of World War II type intrigue and codes and things like that. Yeah, this is a very clearly post-World War II story. There are characters in this who are deserters. And uh, and it deals with characters who were children in World War One being grown-ups now. Right. Uh, but I, the reason I asked about when this happened in her career is I have this idea in my head. That Agatha Christie has the same arc as Wes Craven. Because if you follow, I mean, Wes Craven, you know, he, I think his first movie is Last House on the Left, which is an interesting little, like, it's a horror movie, but it's, it's riffing on, uh, the Rite of Spring and, like, drawing back to these, like, older, influences and putting them like right up front and acknowledging like oh hey horror is the like successor to this other all this older form of storytelling that was more interested in like the grotesque and the violent that we kind of like pushed away for a while and then he settles into doing more sort of like straight up regular horror movies and he does uh you know his his Poirot is Freddy Krueger and then you see kind of in what we now realize I think for some people thought was probably the later part of his career, what we now realize is the middle part of his career in the nineties, he starts to do these stories, these movies that like grow, go back to the stuff he was doing earlier in his career and acknowledge horror movie tropes and horror movie influences. So we get the people under the stairs, which is a movie that I love, uh, which does the similar thing to last house on the left where it's like, Oh, horror stories are like fairy tales, like old spooky Grimm's fairy tales where people died and had their hands chopped off. And I'm going to put that right up front and also use that to comment on how America, the place where the modern horror story was birthed, is the only place that could have happened because it is a place of built on horror and death and genocide. And then he does New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is a story, a movie about making Freddy Krueger. And it's about like, what does it mean to create something horrific and put it into the world? And then he does Scream, which is, like, the big daddy of the meta-horror movie. It's the, the horror movie where the characters have seen horror movies. And this feels a lot like those mid-period Wes Craven movies to me, because this is clearly, like, a story where characters have read Agatha Christie stories. And a story where characters have seen these sorts of plays, like The Mousetrap, and are aware of the tropes and themes of it, and the antagonist 
is using the tropes and assumptions people make about mysteries from having read mysteries as a way to shield himself from suspicion and commit these horrible acts of violence and vengeance. I think that's a good point because a lot of times when you're reading Agatha Christie, her books have an element of something really sinister. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, in my mind, reminds me a lot of like Shirley Jackson and the haunting of like Hill House where people are trapped by something that is evil. A lot of times in Christie's books, the evilness is the things that the acts that people do, but she does sort of put that sort of a sense of the macabre in there. Because like one of the things, like she's always considered like a cozy mystery writer because Miss Marple is sort of a nosy, uh, you know, amateur detective. But in cozy mysteries, part of the thing is, is that you're not really graphic in describing the murder scene. Cozies are sort of the murder is the impetus that causes the rest of the story. But Agatha Christie has no problem going into detail. And, you know, even in, even in this book, when we get into it, there's almost like kind of like a hint of like a serial killer mentality, which is not something you would necessarily find in a cozy mystery. Oh, the killer in this is absolutely a serial killer. I don't know if Agatha Christie was thinking about him in those terms. Cause like, obviously this is, this story's from the 50s, right? Yeah. Like, it's pre, like, Ted Bundy, right, is really the moment where we become aware of, like, the idea of the serial... Obviously, the archetypal, like, first serial killer is right. Jack the Ripper. But I don't think, like, people really understood what a serial killer was until Bundy or maybe Dahmer. Yes. But so- this character definitely operates, like... A serial killer. They have an MO and a calling card and they're targeting a specific type of person. To get back to what you were asking about, about where this falls in her career, her first novel was published in 1920 and her last was published in 1975. Oh, so this is almost perfectly lined yeah, up to what Yeah, this is like right in her, like the height of, and I think at the height of her career, she was almost like, not that she was writing like James Patterson, but she was like a James Patterson where she was publishing one or two novels per year. Mm-hmm. So she was really in that like bestseller cycle where she was producing from her different detectives, different parts of the series. So she was pretty much, you know, in the, in the public, in the pop culture right then and there. So you want to go over what actually happens in the story before we spend too much time talking about it? Yeah. So the story starts out it, uh, with a husband and a wife who right after the war have inherited a manor house, which is a very British thing. Mm -hmm. And they decide to turn their manor house into a boarding house. So on the eve of a really big snowstorm, they open up the house and the guests start to appear. And at the time that the guests are appearing, there's a cut where you find out that a murder has taken place. That's actually how the story starts. The story starts with the murder. And I assume in the radio play, it probably would just started with the sound of the murder and not with any exposition or anything. I think it's also interesting where the murder is happening and then the characters are talking about the murder. So you sort of get two sides. You get the, the killer's point of view and, you know, the bystander's point of view. And then in some ways, the police point of view of what's happening in this. Movie. Yeah, there's a part where it just cuts to the police station. Which feels weird. I un- I guess I like it, it needs to be there for context to set up 
later on when the police arrive. So the murder, a woman is murdered in London. Yes. And then there's clues. There's a piece of paper that says, it says three blind mice. This is the first one. And then it has the list of the manor house where the boarding home is now. Yeah. And then at some point, the sergeant, the police sergeant, calls the manor house and says, we're going to send a detective because your house is listed on as one of the potential places for the second murder. Mm-hmm. But they're all snowed in. And this is an, a classic Agatha Christie um, thing that happens is everyone is trapped. Yeah. And then in this case, they're trapped in the manor house that's a boarding house that has now been snowed in. Mm-hmm. So they don't know if they're stuck with the murderer or, you know, what's going on at this point. Yeah. So the characters that are stuck in the manor house are Giles and Molly, who are the married couple that have inherited this house. Uh, Molly was a school teacher and Giles was a soldier. Right. And they quickly got married after the war. Yeah. Giles is initially presented as kind of a sinister figure. Right. Like she, Molly starts to realize she doesn't know all that much about him. Uh, and then there's Miss, Mrs. Boyle. Mrs. Boyle, who's the very judgy, you know, large matronly woman who is living in the boarding house because her house had been taken over during the war and it's a terrible shambles and she doesn't want to live there. She also, she's a weird character because her, kind of her deal is like. No, she's a judge. Well, we don't know that initially. Right. So what she's initially presented as is like, and this is not me. This is not my opinion. This is how the novel presents her. It's like an uppity woman who got too much freedom during the war when there were no men around. And she got too used to having a position of authority. Right. We find out later she was a judge, but we don't know that initially. We just know she did something during the war and she was important. And now she's less important and she is coping with that by being like a busybody and a know-it-all. Right. And the, bossing people around. The busybody know-it-all is another classic Agatha Christie well, yeah, I think that's personality another, trait. The, like, this book sets up a bunch of different like... I think initially we're maybe supposed to think she's going to end up being the person who solves the mystery. And she ends up being the first victim in the boarding house. But that's how all the Agatha Christie novels work. Is every person who's presented has something that makes you think they may be the killer or they may be a victim. So there's always this sort of you don't quite know the true nature, you know, because there's all this sort of subterfuge going along. And then there's Miss Miss Casewell, who is described as, she's like in her 20s, and she's described as a mannish woman. That's really all the characterization she gets. Yeah, she's really not. There's Mr. Pavaricini, who is a foreigner who is very sinister, and he won't, he's got, he has three blind mice stuck in his head the whole time. He wears a lot of makeup. And has a very young walk, but he looks like an old man, implying that he might be a young man who's wearing old man makeup. Uh, or he's just a very vain old man. And then there is a twist reveal about what, what his actual deal is. It's interesting about this character because you get all these sort of clues as the story progresses. And one of the clues that the sergeant who calls on the phone tells him is that they think the murderer is the older brother of this of this child that was murdered in foster care. Mm-hmm. So you get this kind of impression that 
the killer might be young. Mm-hmm. So then you have this idea of like, okay, could it be Giles? Because he's supposed to be a young man. You know, Mr. Power of Vicini, he has these traits that make you think that he's a young man. You know, this, and then there's another actual young man whose name is Christopher Wren. Yeah, who is. He's very shady. He, well, he's very queer coded. And he is a aspiring, maybe, architect who is very excitable. And th- that's really all there is to him initially. He, he, Giles doesn't like him because Giles is a proper British gentleman. Right. And Molly does like him. Cause he's a, mo- I think Agatha Christie's what you called queer coded. She has this group of characters that are like young men dandies that really sort of like, Call back to the 1920s. And the policeman shows up. He goes, I always find men in uniform to be so very handsome. Right. There's no way that Christopher Wren is not supposed to be a gay man. Well, I think that she uses this sort of... Her gay man is always this, like, call back to the 1920s dandy. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, that's her style of gay man. Like, he's effeminate and stylish and fashionable. I mean, her... Like... Perot is like one of the characters that everyone says is is gay. Mm-hmm. And he always has a male companion who's a young dandy. Yeah. So I think that's just like how she... I mean, it might be cutting edge. It might be she's extremely aware at the time. But it, her style of what a gay man is just one thing. He's a dandy. I think this is very deliberate because I think part of making him... It's a little... It's, it's a weird thing because it's... I think part of making him so heavily queer-coded is a red herring. And it's, on one hand, what it implies is kind of fucked up. But on the other hand, the fact that she subverts it is uh, maybe admirable. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But he's he shows up and he's, like, charmed by this old house. and He's, he's a young student. Yeah, he's studying to be an architect. And he's named after the famous architect, Christopher Wren. But let's talk about the last character, Major Metcalf. Yeah, Major Metcalf is a eccentric, old English major. I mean, he's that sort of like Colonel Blimp kind of archetype. He gets up early to exercise, and he's very serious, like proper English gentleman. And then the last, the actual last character that arrives is the police detective, Lieutenant Trotter, who arrives on skis. Right. Because they, there's a terrible snowstorm, and then the sergeant calls and says, we're going to send a, a, a detective. Yeah. And then she says, well, we're snowed in, and he says, it's not a problem. Yeah. So then the detective shows up in his skis, and then very heavy-handed plot point, they tell you that he puts his skis in the closet so that you know where yeah. his skis are at all times. So now we have... This potential killer among us. We have a group of people who are stuck together. Mm-hmm. We have this sort of stereotypes of the people that are stuck in Agatha Christie's novels. And then we have the the song, The Three Blind Mice, and the clues. Mm-hmm. So these people who are in the manor house are going to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So I, one of the things I wanted to point out is something that Agatha Christie does all the time is she has one person who's extremely unpleasant so that that's the person that you always think is the murderer when you first start reading the story. And I think that 
Mrs. Boyle is that person that you're supposed to think is completely unpleasant. Yeah, she is, she is awful and mean. She's snotty about the food that Molly cooks, and she's uh, very much not a fan of Christopher Wren in a way that is probably homophobic. The one, another thing that I don't, I always think is kind of off-putting about Agatha Christie is she always has this like suspicious foreign person. Well, this is clearly a play on that because it's his. Foreign, I, like, I think a lot of this book, a lot of this story is her playing with the expectations of her audience. So, the, when the policeman calls, or it might be when Lieutenant Trotter first arrives, at some point Molly has a conversation with a person. I can't remember if it's the, the sergeant at the station or if it's Lieutenant Trotter, where he brings up this idea that, like, this killer is mentally disturbed. And she gives you... This weird foreign guy with his old man makeup. She gives you a gay man and she gives you a character that she pretty clearly raises the possibility is not like. I think there's this idea where once you acknowledge like, okay, the killer is of this certain age and is maybe mentally disturbed. You as like a 1950s British person is supposed to go, well, it could be the the gay guy or it could be the woman who you assume to be a man in drag, or it could be the weird foreign guy. And none of those are the cases. Oh, also it could be the silent, sturdy husband who doesn't want to talk about his experiences in the war. Which I think is another character that a lot of people at that time could relate to. But I think by offering up the, the, the... All of those characters turn out to be perfectly, like, friendly people. Like, Christopher Wren, like... Spoiler alert, Christopher Wren is not the killer, Miss Casewell is not the killer, Mr. Pavarocini are, are not the killer. And I think by portraying them as, the, like, on one hand, I think portraying them as these sort of stereotypes and raising the possibility that they might all be the way they are because of trauma and mental illness is kind of fucked up. I do enjoy the fact that she's playing off of the sort of dirty expectations of her audience. Yeah, I think who that- would Who want there to be, like, a... A Norman Bates type twist when in reality it's, it's the second most respectable person in the house is actually the killer. So despite the fact that Molly says we need to all stick together so that the murder doesn't get us, they mm. all separate the different rooms in the house and dun dun dun, the killer strikes. Yes. And strangles Mrs. Boyle to death. And then I guess this is where it really becomes clear that it's meant to be like an audio play. Because the way that they try to figure out who the killer is, is they try to suss out the piano sound of somebody playing the Three Blind Mice song as Mrs. Boyle is being strangled. Yeah. And after Mrs. Boyle is strangled, we get like a the sort of middle section of the story, which is mostly just heightening everyone's suspicions. And so there's a series of conversations about like, that essentially raised the possibility that all these different characters might be the killer. So Giles and Molly have a conversation where Giles points the finger at Christopher Red and raises the idea that, like, we don't actually know anything about him. He just showed up. And then Lieutenant Trotter and Molly have a conversation where Lieutenant Trotter points the finger at Giles and says, like, what do you actually know about Giles besides his war record, which he could have just made up? And then 
Before she dies, Miss Boyle and Molly have a conversation where Miss Boyle points the finger at Mr. Pavaricini. And then Mr. Pavaricini has a conversation with Molly where he kind of just raises general suspicion that it literally could be anybody, maybe even you, maybe me. There's no way to know. And and I, I think Mr. Pavaricini is smart in that he kind of brings the conversation around to the motive for the murder that happens in London, which is this event that happened during the war where the foster child was killed. Mm -hmm. And as the conversation unravels, you get to hear the hidden story, which is another thing that Agatha, this is almost like murder on the Orient Express where what happened in the past influences the current murder. So the story about the foster child being murdered Mm -hmm. gives them clues to who could possibly be the killer. So that we learn that Mrs. Boyle was a judge during the war and she presided over the case. And we know that Molly is a school teacher who's one of the children was her student and she ignored a letter where the person asked for help. And then we learn that the, one of the children is still alive and could be a young ch- a young adult, maybe in his 20s to 30s. Yeah. So we started to sort of get these clues that any one of these people could fit the mm. mold of who has a grudge against another person in this house. Yeah. We also find out around this time, Christopher Wren's past, which is that he was a soldier and a really good one. And so good that he did not realize he was developing incredibly serious PTSD. And then when he found out that his aunt, I think, or his mother died in the Blitz, he went AWOL. Right. And Christopher Wren is an alias that he made up because that's pretty obvious because it's the name of a famous architect. But I think this is an important plot point in a lot of Christie's novels because it's so relevant to what's happening in England in the early 1950s. It's right after the war, and a lot of the soldiers are returning. Mm -hmm. And then this is one of the first modern wars, and then there's this sort of element of we were all in the war, and we're all slightly shell-shocked, even Mm -hmm. the people who stayed at home who survived the Blitz and things like that. So I think this sort of bringing to light about soldiers who may not be quite right, as they said, coming back from the war. I mean, it's kind of like an easy way to like make someone into a bad guy by saying they were upset about the war and now they're murderers. Yeah. But I think it's kind of of the time period of what was happening in England at that time. Mm-hmm. So then, uh... Mrs. Boyle gets murdered. They try to call for help, and then they realize that the phone. This is another thing. This this well, kind of case could only happen in a time where you had sketchy phone service. The important part is before they find out that the phone line is dead, Lieutenant Trotter volunteers to go and examine the phone line to see if it has been cut, and then it turns out that it has been cut. Of course, because I mean, what else would you do in your manor house except cut your? Telephone lines. And then he calls everyone together to have a parlor room reveal scene. And where he says that he has figured out who the murderer is. And the way that he's going to illustrate this to everyone is this. He has this elaborate plan. This part, this is the best part of the story. Is this elaborate plan where they're going to recreate the conditions that everyone was in when the murder happened. But they're all going to switch roles. And... It raises, it's like, 
it makes everyone confused about the circumstances of the murder. And they're like, wait, what was happening? Was Mr. Pavaricini actually playing the piano? Was that not going on? And they all get very confused. And Molly and Lieutenant Trotter go off to reenact some part of the sequence of the murder. And it is this is when it is revealed that the reason this parlor room scene doesn't make any sense is because it's bullshit. He made it up because he wanted to lure Molly off alone with him because he is the murderer and she is the next victim. And he wants to kill her. And then I think Christopher Wren and Giles come. No, no, Mr. Major Metcalf turns out to be the actual police officer and he intervenes and saves her. And we find out that Lieutenant Trotter was the surviving kid from the manor, foster child from the manor, and that Miss Casewell is his older sister. And she, after he has his mental breakdown when he's caught and revealed to be the murderer, she says she's going to, like, take him away and deal with him. And I think that's what happens all the time in Agatha Christie novels is that people have a hidden story or secret past and it's revealed and also, there's also some, no matter how tenuous it is, there's some connection between all of the people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. I, I like, think this is actually when we find out that Molly was one of the children's school teachers. And she claims that when she got a letter asking for help that she supposedly ignored, she was too ill to read the letter. And by the time she did read it, it was too late and the children were already dead. Yeah, so I think this is another thing that happens a lot in Agatha Christie novels where there's this, this suspicion and as a certain amount of information is revealed, people start to turn on each other. Yeah. And then that creates a level of chaos and then it has to be this authority figure that shows up and says, okay, I know exactly what happened. And then it's very complicated and that person guesses 100% correctly this very extravagant plot. Uh, yeah. Major Metcalf is a bad police officer. I thought Mr. He... Pavarcini is the police no, officer. No, Mr. Pavarcini is the black market smuggler. Oh, right, right. Because he keeps bringing up fancy foods that he likes to eat that you shouldn't be able to get because of, like, the blockade and rationing. And then it turns out that he... His, the reason he was wearing the makeup was probably because he was in a disguise because he's a wanted criminal. And he says that in gratitude for to Molly that like, hey, you know, maybe a couple of cans of foie gras or some nylons might find their way to you. And if they do, don't say anything. Well, I think that makes sense because the whole, all through the story, Molly, who is a new wife and mm. the first time boarding house operator, is very concerned about having enough food and storing food and making food for the people that are in the house. Yeah. So that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, so the, the end result is Miss Casewell is the sister of the murderer. Lieutenant Trotter is the murderer. Major Metcalf is a police officer. Christopher Wren is a deserter. Mr. Pavarcini is a smuggler. Giles is exactly what he seemed to be. Molly is exactly what she seemed to be, except we do find out that she was a school teacher who was maybe had the deaths of some children weighing on her conscience. And then also, at one point in the story, the suspicion is raised between Giles and Molly that they both realized that neither of them were in the manor and were both, in fact, in London on the day of the murder. And then it turns out the reason for that was they were buying each other presents. And it's like a weird, like, gift of the Magi. Yes, that's right. Because 
she gets suspicious of him like he might actually be the murderer because she finds out that he was in London. Yeah, and then he finds out she was in London and he starts to suspect that maybe she and is the murderer or that she and Christopher Wren are working together and Christopher Wren is the murderer. Right. Right. But I think the reason why he's disgruntled and mean and crotchety is because he's upset with his wife. Yeah. So that's kind of like that is his excuse for being so awful. But I think this whole like bumbling detective who ends up to being super competent is like another thing that Agatha Christie does a lot. Because Major Metcalf seems like a goofball. Yeah, he's a ridiculous figure when he first shows up. But I mean, he still let a murder happen in the house where he was staying and then still pretended to just be some doofball and let people go off on their own with people who were potentially the murderers. Like, he has a very, like, laissez-faire attitude towards solving this murder mystery to the point where he doesn't really do anything. He just happens to intervene at the moment when the second murder is going to, or I guess the third murder is going to happen. The part that I had the most time sort of resolving in my mind is that Major Metcalf is the detective who was sent by the sergeant. But it turns out that Sergeant Trotter reveals, when he's revealed to be the murderer, that he faked that call to Molly to tell Molly that the detective was coming. Yeah, but Major Metcalf was already there when the call happened. They sent the, the police sent a detective bef- well before that, and they didn't inform anyone, which seems like bad police procedure. <laughs> But meanwhile, concurrent to that, the actual murderer is pretending to be the police sergeant, and he's the one who's telling them that the police are coming. Yeah. But I I love this sort of idea that Detective Trotter shows up in his, like, cross-country ski. It seems like a very British thing to do, to show up when you cross-country ski, saying, I'm here to solve the murder at the boarding house. Mm -hmm. And then, actually, you're the murderer. (laughs) We're all the murderer. But I thought it was kind of fun. I mean, it was like, I guess, that I mean, it's not meant to be like a real brain bender. I mean, the goal of Agatha Christie is that you can solve that murder either before the detective or while the detective is. But the point of this story is that you can't do that. Because the person, like, the reason you can do that in a regular mystery story is because there's a detective character there whose job is to find all the concrete facts and evidence and lay them out before you and sort of guide your brain in the right direction. But the point of this story is the character that's supposed to do that is trying to deliberately mislead us and all the other characters the entire time. I think, though, if this was a full-length Agatha Christie novel, that would happen. There would be an investigation. There would be a lot of um, conversations with the different people to find out who was a suspect, but I think because it's compressed into a half-hour play, it's kind of like the longer arc of solving the murder is compressed. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's the trick of it, right? Is that, like I said, one of the twists of this is that Lieutenant Trotter is the murderer. The other twist is this is not a mystery story. It's like kind of this weird thriller, I guess you could call it. Yeah, that's why I was saying there were parts of it that sort of reminded me of like modern detective fiction where there's, you know, they're hunting a serial killer and there's that sort of 
nod to like, there's a murderer on the loose, you know, you know, there's a bad man around and here's a couple of clues. And, but I think it's also interesting because it makes sense to me if you were listening to the wireless and it talked about this three blind mice murderer that in your mind, the next step would be, would be that you would think about that nursery rhyme and that audio clue of that nursery rhyme would be stuck in your head. So like the people are going around the manor house and they're kind of like thinking about this story and they're hearing, because there's some confusion about it. Did they actually hear the Mr. Pavricini? Pavricini playing Three Blind Mice on the piano or did they just hear it in their head because they all had that song stuck in their head? Or was it just the murderer whistling? Or was it just the murderer whistling? Yeah. There's an interesting part of this where Mr. Pavarugini talks about how three blind mice is this, like, quintessentially British children's rhyme because it's so violent and, like, pointlessly cruel. Which makes the idea that this was written specifically for the Queen of England interesting. Like, I think there's a, there is a sort of subtle... I think um, satire of like British society and class going on here. You know, this is sort of a story about like the birth of the middle class and like the contracting of the upper class and the aristocracy and leaving these people who, you know, Molly inherits this manor, but she does not have like, they have no servants and she doesn't have the money to keep the pantry fully stocked. And they're like, inhabiting the bones of the aristocracy and have to deal with the legacy and like the violent legacy of the aristocracy but they don't have any of the sort of monetary or social tools that the people who used to live in this house had and i think that's i mean that's a good point also on the flip side of that you have this sort of pseudo aristocracy of the people who were important during the war like mrs boyle Mm -hmm. so she had enjoyed a certain amount of prestige during the war which is now removed from her so she's back to being middle class and Mm -hmm. it's difficult for her yeah yeah and then she gets strangled to death well it's her own fault she should not have separated herself from the pack the first person to separate from the pack is always murdered first yeah. I mean, Mrs. Boyle should pretty much have been wearing, like, a red shirt. She was the first to go. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised more people didn't die in this. I'm surprised that there's a part where Lieutenant Trotter goes, oh, I talked to everyone and found out their alibis and where they were when the murder happened. And I'm surprised we didn't get any of those scenes. Well, you might have if it was a full flesh novel. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, I was surprised that this isn't really a mystery, and I was surprised by how much this plays with uh, mystery tropes and the assumptions of the time. I also think because she knew it was going to be something that had a lot of publicity around it, she really bought out her best, like, devices. I mean, she has, like, every single thing that... You know, we're stuck in the manor house. There's terrible weather. There's a killer among us. These people aren't who they say they are. There's all these suspicious people. You know, all these sort of iconic Agatha Christie, like, twists 
that she uses in her in her novel, she like impressed them into this very short story. I don't think that's out of a desire to like impress or whatever. I think that's just there to, to help further trick you into thinking this is a regular mystery story, so you're even more surprised. By the big twist at the end. I was thinking about this whole thing. It's like, because this is like a well-known thing that she does where she has people in disguise. I was wondering if if I was at the time listening to this play and I was an Agatha Christie fan. In my mind, one of these people would have ended up being one of her famous detectives. Like you have the the mysterious foreigner. Is that Perot? You have the bossy old lady. Is that Miss Marple? You have the young couple. Are they the Tuppence and, you know, so I was kind of thinking like, is that what the twist is going to be? Is that one of these is actually a very famous detective? And I was kind of like disappointed in finding out that she didn't actually do that. It seems like weirdly, if that's the case, it's weirdly antagonistic because she's like, oh, here are all of these characters that are sort of like my famous detectives and uh, they're all useless. Yeah. But I think if you were writing a play for the Queen, you would pick something that's slightly more flattering or, you know, slightly more fancy. Yeah, but the Queen already said, hey, you're my favorite writer, so, like, you got her money. Why do you got to pander to her? Yeah, I guess that's true. You're not sure? She's not trying to convince the Queen to like her. She already knows that the Queen likes her. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that the Queen likes detective fiction. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what what else do you expect the queen to read? I don't know. So overall, what did you think of the story? I liked it. I thought it was cool. Uh, yeah, no, I dug it. How did, what did you think about it? I thought it was good. I mean, I really like detective fiction, and I like... I'm sort of obsessed with these iconic detective characters, you know, like Sherlock Holmes and Miss Marple and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I was, I'm curious to read more about Agatha Christie and the formation of these iconic characters that she creates. So. Yeah. How does, how much, how far have you gotten into the project of trying to read her stuff at this point? I, I have read some of her works, just like you said, spotty. Like, I read The Murder on the Orient Express. Okay, but I meant, like, in. in this specific... Have you started this specific project of reading our stuff yet? No. So this is the first, like... This is the first step on that. Right. Okay, because so, I was going to ask how it, it lines up to the stuff you've already read, but... I feel like that would, that, that would be a more useful question, like, a couple months from now. Yeah, and I think from what I've read now, before actively starting to read her works, is... I've only read her works that star her famous detectives. Okay. This kind of is a story without a detective. Yeah. That was the thing that struck me of reading uh, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, is that, I I mean, maybe, I didn't finish it, so maybe this isn't the case, but it seemed like Perot is not in it, but there is a character that knows him and talks about him a bunch, but, like... He he's like, oh yeah, I met this famous detective, and he taught me he told me about his method of deduction, and so I'm gonna follow his methods. But Perot isn't ever actually the he's not the guy who solves the mystery. Yeah, and I think that happens a lot of times in her stories where she says, "You guys should meet this guy. He's a really great detective." You know, I wonder if at some point her ambition was to not so much to write stories about Perot, but to write stories. Where he was kind of this 
mysterious back where there was just this like mysterious background figure tying all these stories together. It was like all these people who knew and were influenced by Perot, but were not him. I wonder if at some point that was the intention and she's changed her focus to actually writing about him or if I'm just reading too much into it. I don't know. I don't know. I guess time will tell. We'll figure it out as we go through the books. Cause like, I, I there's a, a really good comic, uh, series called Gotham Central. That's about the police department in Gotham. And Batman is like there, but he's never the main character of the story. But his influence is all over the place. And I think it's in, that's always an interesting, like a way to establish a like larger than life character is by exploring their effect, but not their presence. Yeah. That's well, like, I, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast, but I like to read. Waiting this. for Perot. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a good one. I'd like to read this detective series um, by Laurie R. King. And I think I briefly talked about this. She writes a series of books called the Mary Russell Mysteries. Mm -hmm. And what they are is Mary Russell is a young woman who meets a middle-aged Sherlock Holmes and becomes his apprentice. And the stories, which are told from the point of view of Mary Russell, peripherally star Sherlock Holmes as an aging detective who's retired. So it's kind of the same thing where Mary Russell is the active detective and Sherlock Holmes is the secondary. He's almost like her Watson. So she writes him in a way that he's not the main detective. So it's not like a reboot of a Sherlock Holmes, you know, type story. It's a different type of story starring Mary Russell, who's a strong female intellectual who now solves mysteries with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I will say one last thing about Three Blind Mice is I was, I think the thing that was most shocking to me was that the major turned out to be the police officer because I thought the major was a lady suffragette. Um, maybe that he is both. (laughs) I mean, we really don't know because we don't get too much into the major's I imagine him having these giant mutton chops and some kind of like vaguely military outfit on, sort of with a big pot belly tromping around the manor house. I was ima- I was imagining him with big the big mutton chops that go into a mustache and they're like gray and curly. And then I was imagining when he was exercising wearing like a dressing gown. <laughs> what I forget, why does he end up at the manor house? He's just retired. Yeah, I forget what the actual reason is. He- I mean, the real reason is he's a detective, but I guess he's he's just a retired major who's looking for a place to stay. So he ends, do, he the, ends up being the country bumpkin police chief who actually is semi competent at solving mysteries. Semi competent. Also, when he starts working out in the morning, Giles calls him an exercise freak. <laughs> Maybe that's a hot trend in the 1950s in England. I just like the idea that it's like, yeah, you read a lot of older books and there is this thing where it's like, oh yeah, being into exercise is like an eccentricity you could give a character. I also like how it's implied that every single person who doesn't live in the city likes to walk like briskly, like wherever they go, like they're all like, you know, they take constitutionals by walking really briskly through the like countryside. Yeah. So, like, the, you know, Lieutenant Trotter is, like, 
he's he's able to cross country ski like a far distance because you know he takes a lot of brisk walks through the countryside. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Boyle is very shocked and disgusted at the idea that they would police would pay a man to go skiing. <laughs> yes, which I mean, turns out they didn't. So, but she doesn't get to know that because she's already dead by that point. Right, right. Okay. Maybe, maybe that was another impetus for her being murdered is her bossy, judgmental ways. Yeah. What do you have against skiing? Well, major the major and the lieutenant should have been good friends because they're both exercise freaks. But the major knows immediately. That's the other thing. What? Is the major pretty much knows who the murderer is from Jump Street and still lets the murder happen because a fake police officer shows up and he doesn't say anything. <laughs> but does he not know that he's a fake? He knows he's a fake police officer. He has officer. to know, right? Because he would recognize him if he was a real police officer. <laughs> and he just lets this guy who's pretending to be an officer of the law have run of this house and a woman dies. The Major is a very bad police officer. But, also, but maybe the Major thinks that he's another police officer until he figures out he's the murderer. Because Lieutenant Trotter does have this plausible plot point where, and Molly it also can confirm that she talked to the sergeant who said they were sending a police officer. If this was a story was being written today, then the Major would have tried to secretly reveal himself to Lieutenant Trotter to get a read on him, and Lieutenant Trotter would have murdered him. And he would have been the second victim. The first or second victim. And that would have been a red herring because the Major doesn't actually have anything to do with the foster child case. But I think Agatha Christie's detectives... It's not like Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock Holmes has a complete disdain for the police force. He thinks that the police force are bumbling idiots, and he Mm -hmm. has no respect for them. But... Agatha Christie has respect for the police. I mean, she saw... Well, that makes me like her less. They, they, I mean, she solves the mystery before the police show up, but it's not like you're, I solved the mystery because you're stupid, mm-hmm. like Sherlock Holmes. It was like, I solved the mystery because I had more time on my hands because I'm retired and I have more time to, you know, indulge in inspecting than you do as a very busy police, you know, police sergeant in some small British town. Yeah, I'm just saying that Major Metcalf, the reveal of Major Metcalf is a weak point in this story because his actions don't make any sense. Well, I feel like Major Metcalf might have been incapacitated by his excessive exercising and his love of gin and tonics. I mean, there's no other reason why he could not have solved that mystery in a more timely fashion. Yeah, exactly. But also, he also seems like incredulous when he hears like some of the evidence that's being revealed he's like shocked just as much as everybody else like wouldn't you think he would know the details of the first murder he was sent there to investigate it maybe he's playing it up i don't know i just feel like the big thing is like there's a fake police officer (laughs) and you're a real police officer why are you letting him handle the investigation i don't Well, you did say in the beginning of the podcast that there was a reason why you thought that this detective in this story was never seen again. Oh, yeah, because I think he's really bad. (laughs) (laughs) That was what I was, that's what I meant. I, I, I wouldn't, I'm, I don't think you could tell another Major Metcalf mystery because he's not good at solving mysteries. I think like Agatha Christie is a lot like Doyle. In that her smarty pants detectives, even if you read the story and you analyze the clues along with the detective, 
she never reveals enough of the secret information that the detective has that you can solve the mystery before the detective. Okay. I mean, that's sort of the whole thing. Like, Miss Marple looks at a button, and then she's like, ah, I solved the case. And then it's revealed in this convoluted way, you know, about she was a seamstress in the war and all this stuff, and she figured this out. But, like, you would never know that because you don't have the same information that the detective has. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else to say about Three Blind Mice? Uh, no, I think I covered everything. Not a mystery. There's some thorny stuff about this book's attitude towards uh, LGBT people. But also, there's something weirdly progressive about its attitudes at the same time. Uh, I said the thing about the middle class. I said the thing about Major Metcalf being bad. Yeah, I pretty much covered it. I made my joke, my wings joke, that no one's going to find funny. So yeah, no, I'm good. I think it's interesting that there's this trope of like the mannish woman and could is like a device that she uses that could be like a mannish woman but could also be a man in disguise. Well, I think that's what she wants you to think when they bring up the idea of like the murderer is a man who may be mentally disturbed. They want you as a prejudiced, you know, turn of the century Brit to assume that Miss Casewell is a depraved cross-dresser when actually she's just, you know, a lady with big hands. I think it was interesting that to go back to this Laurie R. King series with uh, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes, she often has Sherlock Holmes dressed like a woman. And I kind of find that to be interesting because I don't think Doyle would ever, like... There's at least... I feel like there's at least one instance in the original Doyle stories where he does... Uh, disguise himself as a lady. But I think he describes himself as, like, a disguise, and it's not, like, an undercover. Like, Mary yeah. Russell, Sherlock Holmes dresses like a woman and acts like a woman because it's sort of his, like, undercover work. Yeah. Like, it's... And I think, like, cross-dressing has become a way to either hide your identity or to, like, like you said, to sort of subtly say that there's some kind of depravity going on. Which is an awful trope, but... I'm glad that this story did not play into it. Like, it raises the specter of it and then banishes it away, which I think is pretty admirable, at least for the time. Well, I think Agatha Christie herself, in one of the, like, salacious details of her personal life, when she goes missing at some point, she disguises herself as a man so that she's not discovered. So I think she also has this sort of propensity to, like, have a fondness for cross-dressing. So, yeah, but it doesn't even... There actually is no cross-dressing in... Just a mannish woman. There's just a mannish woman. But I think they're very... Spe- like, that really is the only detail we get about Miss Caselon. I think that's for a reason. Well, yeah, because it's almost... She's the red herring. Is that a mannish woman or is that a man dressed as a woman? And if it's a man dressed as a woman, is it the murderer? Like, all of these men could be the murderer, plus maybe a woman could be the murderer. Yeah, and then Giles also suspects Molly, but we Molly's the point of view character for the most part, so I feel like there's no point where the reader is supposed to suspect Molly. But, I mean, also at some point, Major Metcalf puts the sort of suspicion on the older men who are there saying, could it be their parents who are, you know, could it be the father who's seeking revenge for his child? Yeah, well, I think that's there to raise up the idea that maybe Mr. Pavarocini is actually old. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, or is he young? And if he if he's either one, he could still be the murderer. But then it turns out he's just a Italian smuggler, a, der- a smarmy foreigner with a shady past who may or may not be hitting on the young lady that's in the story. Yeah, but he's ultimately a benevolent figure. He's just a criminal. <laughs> But he's going to send her some nylons and some cans of foie gras. Which is very important when you're running a boarding house in England. I don't think I would ever stay in a British boarding house or a manor house. Really? Because, you know, there's chances that you're going to be, you know, embroiled in a murder or you're going to be murdered yourself. A farce might happen. That's true. That's the other thing. A class farce. Yeah. You know, running in and out of some rooms. Well, there are Agatha Christie novels where that happens. Mm-hmm. So they're just not as rompous as, you know, some of the stuff that usually goes on in these big British boarding houses. Yeah. I feel like you're generally safe if you're a foreigner because just don't be I'm not a detective. So if I stay in a British boarding house and there's an American staying there, then there probably won't be a murderer. Because why else would I be there if not to be the detective? And I'm not the detective. Right. But I mean, you could also be there to be a cowboy mm-hmm. or a soldier in disguise. Yeah, but I know none of those things. So I'll be safe. You could be a American entrepreneur who's come to America to swindle some people with some kind of weird electrical or water, you know, scam that you're running. Who knows? Yeah. Well, um... We're an hour into recording. So, are you... Want to talk about anything else, or do you want to... Well, I was just going to ask you if you're reading anything good, or you have anything to recommend to people. Uh, let's see. What have I been reading? I just started, I'm not very far into it, uh, Akata Witch, which is Nettie Okafor's, like, young adult fantasy story. Oh. Uh, which is pretty cool. I don't know if I dig it as much as her sci-fi stuff, but it's pretty neat. I could probably recommend that. Um, other than that, I haven't really been reading anything that exciting. I've been reading more Elric stories. I started, like, rereading all of the early Elric stories a while ago and then kind of fell off of that, and I've sort of gotten back onto that recently. Uh, what else have you been reading? I I haven't really gotten too far into it, but I got a copy of the new Marlon James novel, which just came out. It's the first book in a trilogy that he's planning to write, which is a it's a science fiction fantasy trilogy that has basis in African mythology. Okay. So that looks pretty good. It's called Black Leopard Red Wolf. It's gotten really good reviews, and I don't know if it came up in the podcast, but I really, really, really loved his book, A Brief History of Seven Killings, Mm -hmm. which was based on an incident that happened in Bob Marley's life in Jamaica. He writes these novels that have huge amounts of characters. They're very detailed, they're very rich, and they're very fast-paced, so I really enjoy his writing, so I'm really looking forward to, like, having time to just sit down and sort of digest this novel. Cool. It sounds neat. Um, I'm, I would definitely be interested to read it at some point. I'm also reading the second book in the Murderbot Diaries, which we recently talked about the first one, which was very um, popular. People really like 
the character of Murderbot. And one of the things, this is called the artificial condition. Mm-hmm. And it takes place right after Murderbot leaves the city on this transport. Mm-hmm. So it picks right up where the story ended, where she leaves the city and she's on this transport. Yeah, she's become a hobo, a space hobo. Exactly. And she's riding the rails. I love the cover. It has a picture of Murderbot and there's a sort of epic sci-fi you know, skyline in the background. And then instead of having like a quote to like get you to want to purchase the novel, all it says is I love murder bot. And then underneath it says Anne Lackey. So like that's her like endorsement is that she loves murder bot. So I think that's a great sort of endorsement for these novellas. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty solid get. Oh yeah. I'm looking at the cover right now. It's just another picture of, Murderbot in their armor, but they're like standing on a rocky outcropping over like a misty alien landscape with a big imposing spaceship floating above them. But I didn't think about it when we were reading the first one. As part of the Hugo Award list, I read a couple of Anne Lackey's novels, and I think the Ancillary Justice series that she writes. Mm-hmm. I that person is also a robot. Oh, okay. And I think that, like, now, like, seeing, like, seeing her endorsement of Murderbot makes me think that, like, these two stories have a lot in common. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. I've never really, I haven't, I think I've read a couple short stories, but I've never read, I didn't read Ancillary Justice or what it, the other, Ancillary Sword and Ancillary Mercy, I think, are the other two. Yes. I've never read those, but, I mean, I've heard a lot of good things about them. But it's like the style is almost the same. It's sort of this very sparse, very carefully constructed narrative. You know, there's not a lot of superfluous. We talked about this, the world building. There's not this whole bloated, like, front line of, like, science fiction world building that you have to put in you know people feel like they have to put into these novels oh speaking of bloated science fiction world building i forgot the other thing that i've been reading is i started rereading dune because i'm very excited about the movie which apparently just has everyone in it now well i thought it was funny i saw a tweet that said if you're reading this tweet you're now in dune yeah yeah so i'm curious to see i'm i'm curious to see your take on this modern, or, I mean, it's really, it's just a reboot. Is it the same story? What's going on? Yeah, I think on it's just another it? adaptation of the first novel. Um, It was like, I have a, we've talked about Dune before on the podcast, I'm sure. And Dune, like the first book in the Dune series, Dune, by Frank Herbert, is one of my favorite Novels in general, and one of my favorite science fiction novels. And there's problems with it. There's a white savior narrative. There's it's it's simultaneously condemns and kind of apologizes for colonialism, but there's still a lot of really good stuff in it. And I had this like weird like I I often talk about Dune the same way I talk about jazz, which is another thing I love, where I. Love it, but 90% of the time when I talk about it, I'm dunking on it. And there's, like, this long, weird, sordid history of, like, Dune adaptations. And there's, like, there was supposed to be the Jodorowsky Dune movie, which became this big, weird thing that never got made. And then they made a documentary about it. And it was, like, 
mostly based on a dream he had and was going to star his son. And then there's the David Lynch Dune movie, which I love, but is a big mess and is not a particularly good adaptation of the story. There's a Dune miniseries, which is boring, and lots of boring people will be like, it's the best Dune adaptation because it's so faithful, but it's, like, not good? And and I had this thing where I was like, oh, anytime I would hear about, like, some so-and-so wants to make a Dune movie or, or there's going to be this new adaptation of Dune, I would always, like, look askance at it and be like, man, it's not going to happen. Or it happens, it's not going to be the thing I want. I'm not going to let myself get excited about a Dune movie. And then they announced that there was going to be a new Dune movie. And then they announced that it was going to be directed by the guy who did Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, which are, like, probably the two best sci-fi movies, like, since the first Matrix, probably. And I, and then this cast is, like, amazing, and it's all of these people that, like, a lot of them are, are exactly the people I would want to be in this movie. Like, if you ask me, oh, who should be in a new Dune movie, I would be like, oh, Javier Bardem should be somebody in it. And, like, he is. And now I'm really excited for this, and I'm so worried that it's gonna turn out to be bad. But I think, like, now is a weird time to make a Dune movie because of all the problems Dune has with colonialism and... Like, this kind of sort of paternal white imperialism. But also, like, now we have the technology and the filmmaking techniques to make a Dune movie that will look the way that Dune looks in your head when you read the book. So, I don't know. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about this. And I just, like, I'm not looking forward to a round of Dune discourse on Twitter. That's going to be <laughs> awful. In the same way that uh, the announcement that Neon Genesis is going to be on Netflix has put me in a state of dread for the coming Neon Genesis discourse cycle that's going to happen on the internet. I feel that way about the coming Dune cycle, but I'm, I'm excited for the movie itself. I have only read the first novel, and I will, unless something extraordinary happens, never read another Frank Herbert novel. I understand completely. And I have seen Dune, the original Dune, and it has a lot of weird sort of 80s iconic moments in it. A lot of the actors are very much of that. Yeah, I I love that David Lynch movie, but it is like a weird mess. Yeah. So I kind of feel like I, I don't know. I mean, it's. It's kind of just like a weird blip because it's such a huge amount of conversation generated about the people, the speculations about the actors and the roles they're going to play and what's going to be in it. Like you said, what's going to be in the movie that's left out of the books or whatever? Because the books are... Yeah, there's they're, they are stuffed to the gills with stuff. I think it would, almost in my mind, it's kind of like a George R.R. R. Martin novel. That maybe a TV series is the best way to present such a large, dense novel. Oh, it's, yeah. But then again, maybe a movie is just about as much Dune as like, because it's kind of, this, this whole, there are people who are like, just like the Game of Thrones, there are people who are 
book Dune fans, and there are people who are movie Dune fans. Some of them cross over. Some of them are like mortal enemies, and you cannot be a fan of the movie and love the book. So it's kind of like there's this whole fan base that's very rabid. Like they just, you know. Yeah, I'm definitely of two minds about because it's like one hand I do understand like there's so much to Dune and. There's all of this world building and mythology and it covers this huge, like if you read the rest of the books, they cover this huge span of time. But also, I feel like you couldn't really do it as a TV show because it would look awful. But I think... Like, there by the second book even, there are like people turning into sandworms and like... Yeah. We're off on other weird planets, and it's like, I don't think you could, even on the budgets that television shows get now, I don't think you could do it. Like, the worst parts of Game of Thrones are when they're trying to look, except for the the Battle of the Bastards, the worst parts of Game of Thrones are when, Game of Thrones is when it's trying to look like a big, epic, like, blockbuster budget movie, and you see the cracks. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look at the dire, the wolves. But I think, like... You can cut the first Dune book down to a movie length because at its core, it really is just a sort of uh, hero's journey kind of story about a, a boy who, you know, loses his home and learns that he has a greater destiny and defeats the enemies that took his home and his father away from him. And there's all this other stuff about, like, him having visions of the future and cutting to what the Emperor is doing and expositing about the Bene Gesserit and the Navigator's Guild. And all of that can be pared down to tell a story that's just kind of like a more philosophical Star Wars. I think, I mean, say what you want about the volume, the sheer word count of like the Dune series. Herbert was really... Great and sort of very avant-garde in his blending of fantasy and hard science fiction. Yeah, yeah. And I think that sort of sets the precedent for later epic series where people do that. There's a crossover between the fantasy elements and the straight science fiction. Yeah, that's I, absolutely. Which I think is really beautiful that, you know, this the world that he creates is like, you know, an example of a really well thought out, fleshed out world. I mean, he has everything in it, even to the way the dirt works. Yes, I mean, you you'll find out every like even how the money works. I talked about a series where there was constant talk about how the monetary system works, but like he does it in a way that you have all of the information that you need to navigate these stories because you understand so fully. This very robust world. And even as you're reading it, you realize that, like, there's a whole bunch of things that are happening that, like, interact into the story, but you don't know about them. But because you know this world is so fully fleshed out, you can understand what's going on in the story. That's the nicest thing I'm going to say about Frank Herbert. That's it. Well, I also think that another reason why I think now is a good time to do a Dune adaptation is that Dune is a story with a lot of heavy ecological themes. And not in the same way like, like 
I don't know. Not in the same way that, like, Final Fantasy VII is. Like, there's no Mother Earth spirit. It's in a much more, like, hard and concrete way. This is a story about how this imperialist, capitalist society destroys a planet and how the people who have to live on that planet and don't have the benefit of the money and influence of the houses have to deal with their planet, you know, being destroyed and changed and how they have to change to adapt to it. And that's like important, you know, we're, we're recording this the day after that video of Diane Feinstein yelling at the kids who want the green new deal went viral. Like th- that element of the story feels like something that right now is probably pretty vital to like get out to a wide audience in the way that like a big blockbuster sci-fi movie will. And in the way that like, just telling people to read Dune isn't going to. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Yeah. What do we have up next? What's next in the ringer for Dried Up Rain? Uh, up next is Sandman, volume The Sandman, by Neil Gaiman, volume 9, The Kindly Ones. Finally. Yep, this is the penultimate volume in the, uh, the, Sandman, the original Sandman series. This is the big payoff for pretty much everything. I don't think it's a spoiler to say, like, this is the climax, and volume 10 is the denouement. Right? Right? Um, What's the next novella you want to read? Wow, what's the next novella you want to read? I was going to recommend The Lair of the White Room by Bram Stoker. Okay, that sounds good to me. Speaking of, like, 80s iconic movies. Yeah, that's a, a real cold classic, that. Lair of the White Worm movie. I think it's interesting because people think of Bram Stoker as Dracula, but he did write this story. This story also, there's two versions. There's a 1925 edition that has these sort of iconic illustrations that's also, you can get that free on the internet. There's an audiobook on LibriVox you can listen to. There's, you know, the text of the original 1911. There's lots of ways to get access to this. It's in the public domain. So I think it's a good choice for people who might want to read along or have seen the movie but haven't actually read the the novella or are Dracula fans and don't think Bram Stoker is writing anything other than that. Yeah. No, I think this will be an, this will be an interesting one. I'm excited to read this. So, yeah. Uh, next episode, Sandman. Episode after that, Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.